Amen. My title for you this morning is simply, God is love. A lot has been said about love. And if we were to have a conversation about it, I'm sure that you could contribute something to one degree or another about the fact that you're aware how much has been said about love. We don't have to go far. Of course, we can always start with the Beatles. All you need is love. Of course, Meatloaf said, I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. I think we're all still wondering what that is. You uh, two, of course, greatest, one of the greatest rock bands. I won't say the greatest because that might create friction. We don't need friction this morning. But in my opinion, one of the greatest rock bands ever to play rock music in the name of love. And who can forget that great Jim Carrey Saturday Night Live skit, What is Love? <laughs> Baby, don't hurt me. A lot's been said about love. And if we were to have a conversation about what has been said about love, again, one degree or another, each and every one of us, yeah, each and every one of us could say something. But as you might imagine, that's not the direction I'm going this morning. The challenge that I have with these things isn't that they are necessarily bad or evil, but that they are rooted in a definition of love that isn't biblical. We all want love, and we all do things for love, but we also want what we believe is love. And we do things for the love that we believe we deserve. Today, the Apostle John is going to teach us something that's going to revolutionize the way we see our relationship with God, our relationship with others, the way we see Christianity, and of course, everything else. I have three simple points for you this morning. Love's priority, love's sacrifice, and love's example. Love's priority Love, sacrifice, and love's example. Let's begin with verses 7 and 8, and that is love's priority. We begin again with verses 7 and 8, and that is love's priority. If you'll read it again with your eyes as I read aloud, beginning with beloved. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not Love does not know God because, what are the next three words? God is love. And typically, we break down our sections as we go through them line by line, and we're going to do the same thing here today. There's a couple of things that I think are worthy of our observation. First, John's word is that we, quote, love one another. Beloved, love one another, he says. It's a beautiful assonance in the original Greek. He says, agapitoi agapomen, a, a, a. It has a rhythm and a beautiful poetical sound to it. He's saying, loved ones, love one another. This isn't foreign idea to 1 John. We've already come across so many verses like it in this letter. Some of them are going to come up here on the screen. I'm going to read them to you. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Another verse, chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should what? Love one another. 
1 John chapter 3, verse 18. Little children, do not love the world or talk, uh, in word or in talk, excuse me, but in deed and in truth. So John isn't going on another path here when he says, beloved, love one another. He's further developing a thought that he's already introduced earlier in this letter of 1 John, namely, the importance of love in the life of the believer. Second, John's word is rooted in the truth, namely, that love is from God. First of all, he tells us that we are to love one another, but secondly, we find that this command he's giving to us is rooted in this truth that love is from God. It isn't something that is, uh, simply began to ruminate in our minds, something that we manufactured or entertained because we got bored here on planet Earth. No, John says, love is from God. And why wouldn't it be from God? Verse 8 tells us, God is love. And this is a verse that is commonly quoted, fairly well known. If you're looking for a verse to memorize, this is an easy place to start. God is love is not hard to forget. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. But this doesn't mean that God is gullible. Tolerant of evil or sin, permissive, forgetful, or weak. To say that God is love isn't to say that God lacks righteousness, holiness, or justice. That's often what's intended by the word love today. Accept me the way I am, I'm not changing. Accept me the way I am, tolerate me the way I am. If you don't, then you don't love me. But that's an infant's definition of love. We see that on aisle five in Publix, being acted out by a two-year-old. That's not a biblical definition of love. A biblical definition of love comes with a level of maturity most of us do not aspire to. Let me explain what I mean. If God is love, which 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 says, then love has expectations that reflect his character. When the Bible talks about love, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we learn a few things about it, and they're going to come up here on the screen. If you've ever been to a wedding... You have heard this chapter. You may have never read the Bible ever, and you've heard this. 1 John chapter 13, verses 4 through 6, teach us this. Love is patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. Did I not put it up there? I did put it up there. Yeah, sorry, my bad. I misspoke. Just follow me. Thank you. Love is patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. Love isn't arrogant or rude. Love doesn't insist on its own way. Dimey. <laughs> <laughs> she listens to this later. <laughs> I 
Did I do that right, Wayne? Yeah, I'm in trouble now, brother. Love isn't irritable or resentful. Most of us were lost on the first part of this verse. Love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. And finally, the climax of this entire teaching section in 1 Corinthians 13 says this, love rejoices with the truth. You see, it's not only the negatives. Love isn't like this. It doesn't do that. It doesn't behave this way. It isn't like this. But the climax of the entire thing is found in this idea, love celebrates the truth, which tells us, church, this very important realization, that if God is love, then when we talk about love, we can't dumb it down and dilute it into something that we like it to be. It is a reflection, love is, of God's character. It's not resentful. It's not unkind. It's not arrogant. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It celebrates the truth. The thing that I want you to note is that while John says God is love, John does not say love is God. This is a logical fallacy called false equivalence. God is love, but love is not God. Today, love is little more than an idol that's pursued through relationships that are often immoral, drug or alcohol-induced, flirtation and intimacy with people who aren't our spouse, all in the name of love. We've got those stupid shows, The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, while our society is losing its mind about the the equivalence of men and women, we prostitute people and put it on primetime television, and the same organizations that tell us that men and women are equal are the same organizations doing nothing but objectifying us. Oh, you watch it. We pursue it. But this is not what John is talking about. John is not talking about the romantic comedy. John is talking about something deeper here. Because God is love, but love is not God. And the thing that we often pursue for our own conveniences, our own benefit, our own preferences is an idol. It isn't God. And what does the scripture say about idols? You shall have no other gods before me. The third thing that I want you to observe in this text is this. John says that loving is done by those who know God. So first of all, we are to love one another. Second of all, this teaching is based on the fact that God is love and commands us to do it because love is from God. And thirdly, those who do loving are those who know God. There's a positive correlation between those two things. If God isn't only the source of love, but is actually love in his innermost being, then how can we say that we know him and are known by him? That we are, in fact, born-again Christians. If we ourselves are unloving. One commentator writes this, quote, The argument is plain and compelling. 
for the loveless Christian to profess to know God and to have been born of God is like claiming to be intimate with a foreigner whose language we do not speak. The biblical truth here, church, namely that God is love, should inform our theology and motivate our living. We should believe in the truths of the gospel with passion because God is love. And we should live out the truths of the gospel with passion because God is love. We should excitedly live a life of obedience because God is love. Which leads us to our second point, and that is love's sacrifice. This is found in verses 9 and 10. We're going to read 7 through 10 together. If you look at it again with your eyes as I read it, it says, Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. We've been through that now. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now here's our second point, love's sacrifice. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that, in the Greek, this is a purpose clause, hina, he did that so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So there's a few things that I want to note here as we cover these couple of verses. First, love's sacrifice is seen in Jesus. Love's sacrifice is seen in Jesus. If you want to know what love is, if you want to understand love and sacrifice, then look to Jesus. God's only son, the one whom he sent, the one who is manifesting among us, the one whom he sent, John says in verse 9, so that we might live through him. I love the prepositions in the New Testament. We live through him, in him, with him, for him. All of those are important, and we miss the value in these things, church, John is saying that living through Jesus is a non-negotiable if we would be Christians and experience the love of God because the love of God is revealed to us in the sacrifice of whom? Jesus. He's our Savior. He's our King. He's our Lord. And he's our friend. God had only one son, Colin Cruz writes, and he sent him into the world because of his love for the world. So the sacrifice is seen, first of all, in Jesus. Second, love's sacrifice is seen in initiative. Love's sacrifice is seen in initiative. In other words, love doesn't sit back and wait to be fulfilled before it acts. Love acts. That's what love does. It acts. It acts out of its sufficiency. It acts out of its abundance. And I'll say this, love acts out of its ability. Love acts. Don't forget, 
talking about love sacrifice here. God is love. So when we say that love acts out of its fullness and sufficiency and ability, we're not giving some weird attributes to this ethereal feeling called love. We're talking about God himself. When God does something for people, he does it because God has no need. God is completely satisfied in and of himself. And when he loves, he takes the initiative because he doesn't need anything from us. There's an important phrase that proves this initiative, and it's this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Church, the initiative and motivation of God's love is what makes forgiveness and salvation a possibility. Sometimes when you talk about theology, you hear people say things like, if you were the only person in the world, God would send Jesus for you. Or you might hear something like, you are so important to God that he sent Jesus just for you. Or you might hear something along the lines of, the reason God sent Jesus for you is because he knew you would believe. I'm sure if you've been around church circles for any amount of time, you've heard something to that effect, and none of that is true. None of that is biblical. You will not find a verse in the Bible that says God sent his son because he sent a sort of test beacon into the future and seeing that you would believe, therefore decided to send Jesus. That's not what John says. John says we love because he loved us first. We love because God loves. We don't reverse the priority there. This is unbiblical rubbish. Not one of those phrases that I mentioned earlier is supported in the Bible. God loved because that's what God does. He loves. God is love. We're sinners. We're undeserving. We cannot merit. We cannot earn. We are unwilling and unable to love each other or God without God's priority and initiative in our lives. That's exactly what John is saying here. Not that we love God, but that God loved us. God didn't send Jesus into the world because I'm awesome. God sent Jesus into the world because he's awesome. God didn't send Jesus into the world because I'm worthy. God sent Jesus into the world because he's worthy. God didn't send Jesus into the world because I'm important. Some of you guys need to hear this, man. God sent his son into the world because he's important. God did not send his son into the world because I'm deserving, but because he's deserving of glory and honor and blessing and praise. So when we go around talking about how worthy people are, and then we can't figure out why they won't bow a knee to Jesus, the savior of the world, there's a conflict in our theology, and there should be. Because they aren't worthy of that salvation. It is extended by God through Jesus in grace and in love. So when people reject him, they reject him because that's what sinners do. 
Sinners reject God until God does a work in their heart, making it new. Some of you know this because you look back on who you were 10 years ago or 20 years ago, and you say, in view of what the Bible teaches and your own experience, but for the grace of God. Others of you have sat under teaching for a long time that was just bent enough to make you feel like, I have decided to follow Jesus. It's one of the worst hymns ever written. You did not decide anything. God regenerated you. What you would have decided to do is stay in your mud and play in your sin. Without the regenerating grace of God, which is motivated by the fact that God is love, we would all be dead in our sins and trespasses. We love because God loves one final note that I want you to see here, and that's this, that not only is God's love taking the initiative, but thirdly, God's love is satisfying. God's love is satisfying. Another key term that we see in this text is this word propitiation. It's in verse 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Get it? and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is an echo of 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Obviously, this is not a word that you used over breakfast this morning, propitiation. So let me break it down for you just a bit. To propitiate means to appease or placate the wrath of an individual that you've wronged or offended. In other words, we are sinners, unholy, unclean. God is holy. God is clean. And we have offended his glory. We have offended his standards. We have offended his grace. As a result, we are recipients of God's wrath. At the end of time, the great white throne judgment will be to reveal the wrath of God against sinners who have not submitted to God in Jesus Christ. But between now and then, praise his name, God has given to us a means by which to placate his wrath to appease his wrath, to propitiate his wrath toward us. And that means is Jesus. John says, he is the propitiation for our sins. If we have offended God because we're sinners and God is holy and therefore he must punish sin, if we would be forgiven, we must propitiate his sin. We're deserving of his wrath. We're deserving of his judgment. But Jesus provides, excuse me, provides for us propitiation. He is our propitiation, John says. He is the means by which God's wrath is appeased and placated. When we place our faith in Jesus as our Savior, God's posture towards us changes. And we're no longer anticipating his wrath in the future at judgment, but instead his welcome as a father welcomes his children home because we've been forgiven and we've been redeemed. 
and his wrath has been satisfied. Not that we could ever satisfy it, but Jesus satisfied it for us. This is what propitiation means. It's a word that most translations have watered down and translated into the text, but it's a word that we should keep. Because without the word, we have a tendency to negate the weightier matters of the gospel. Namely, God's wrath against sinners like you and me, unless that sin is placated and that wrath is placated. So we've seen love's priority. We've seen love's sacrifice, which is demonstrated in Jesus himself. And finally, love's, excuse me, love's example. Verses 11 and 12, love's example. You can read with your eyes as I read aloud. It says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. There's really no need to cover over again what we've already covered, except to note that the end is essentially John reiterating what he's already said. In verse 12, we get an important lesson, especially for us living in 2021. What, what year is it? 2022. We've never seen Jesus. After Jesus' resurrection, he appeared to his disciples, but Thomas, one of the disciples, wasn't present at that time. When his disciples relayed the story of seeing Jesus after the resurrection to Thomas, Thomas' answer was essentially, when I see it, I'll believe it. Jesus appears to the disciples again when Thomas is in company. And of course, Jesus speaks to him directly. He says, Thomas, touch the holes in my hands and the hole in my side. Be not unbelieving, but believe. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Jesus' response to this is simply, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, but believed. Church, faith doesn't mean taking steps in the dark without knowledge, without evidence. Faith isn't ignorant. Faith is informed. Faith is intelligent. But faith does require steps of trust and reliance. We live every day by faith. In the Son of God, whose life is proven, whose resurrection is proven. And none of us has ever actually set our eyes on Jesus. Now, for some, this is a real issue. For others, the evidence for Christ in Christianity is sufficient. 
Yet for others still, even if they saw Jesus himself and had all the evidence in the world, they still wouldn't believe because Christianity isn't about us. Christianity is about Christ. And some people will not give up being in the God business. At the end of the day, people aren't willing to give up their lives to God in the name of Jesus. So it really isn't about evidence, is it? On the other hand, entirely, I know that there are some people, and perhaps you do too, who supposedly have seen God. And they have talked to God, and God has talked to them about this, that, and the other thing. And people who, according to them, have dreams and visions. But what does John say? What is it that John says? John says, no one has ever seen God. Sometimes when I bump into people who are more mystical and we'll say spiritual in quotation marks, and of course they find out that I'm a pastor or a Christian, they say, oh yes, I, God speaks to me all the time. That's always an interesting conversation. But I take issue with people who speak outside of the boundaries of the word of God. We don't see it in the Bible. And then at the end of the apostolic age, the age of the apostles, the apostles very clearly say emphatically without any question or hesitation, nobody has seen God. And when God speaks to people, he speaks to them through us because the apostle John says just a few verses earlier, you listen to us because we are from God. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't speak. What I'm saying is that God doesn't speak like I'm speaking to you right now. God speaks to you through his word. God speaks to you through circumstances. God speaks to you through that ministry, that nudging and guidance of God the Holy Spirit. Those are three ways right there that God speaks to us, loudly and clearly. The truth of the matter is, all you need to have to understand it, to be sensitive to it, is faith. John says that those who love one another in Christ, those who love God, have God abiding in them. That's God the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had these moments. Moments when I personally know that the Lord is with me, directing my passions, organizing my circumstances, and guiding my life. And I have never had God speak to me out loud. I don't have to see him to know he's here with me. And I don't have to hear him audibly to hear him. But in a sense, I've seen him a million times. And I hear him all day. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That's faith. Do you have that faith? And finally, John says that God's love is perfected in us in verse 12. And that is to say, 
matured, completed, not perfected in the sense that, oh, it's perfect, but in the sense that when God's love is in our lives, the fulfillment of God's love, the completion of God's love is not just that his love has impacted us through Jesus Christ, but that we love others as a consequence. David Jackman writes, so God's love finds its completion. There's the idea, finds its completion by creating in us that same kind of self-giving love as his. Church, we've talked about love's example here. And when we talk about love's example, we can find no greater example than that which is found in God sending his one and only son to be for us what we could never be ourselves so that through faith in him, we might be saved. The reality of the matter is, each and every one of us who walked into this building today were sinners. Each and every one of us is a sinner. And sin is not a complicated idea. We we sort of make the word sacrilegious, but, but the idea behind sin is a failure to do what God has called you to do. God's called us to be righteous, and we're unrighteous. God's called us to be holy, and we're not holy. God says, for example, do not lie or cheat or steal. But we lie, and we cheat and steal. And so as a result, we need something to be counted to our account to make up for the debt of sin that we have between us and God. Isaiah says it loudly and clearly when he says, your sins have created a chasm between you and your God. That's what we are dealing with. But it's the love of God, church. The love of God that sends Jesus to provide for us that by faith in Jesus, we would be forgiven and have a relationship with God, not only here today, but for eternity. And what is the evidence of the fact that we've been born again and have a relationship with God who is love. John says, the evidence is seen in that we love one another. Man, we have a lot going on in our world right now. We could use some love, amen? It's not about political persuasion. It's not about propaganda. It's not about what side of the aisle you fall on. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about here is found in 1 John chapter 4. And John says, if you know God, then you know love. And if you know God, then you will be loving. Who in your life needs to see the love of God in you? It might be a spouse. It might be a friend. It might be a coworker. The reality of the matter is we fail to be the loving Christians that God often calls us to be because we don't know how to do it well. Amen? Sometimes we're worried that we won't do it right. Here's what I'm going to place in your hands. You do with it what you will. How does God love you? Well, we remember from that great text in 1 Corinthians 13, God loves us in a patient way. God loves us in a kind way. God loves us in a way that's not irritable. 
God loves us in a way that's not rude. God loves us in a way that's not arrogant or boastful. God loves us in a way that doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. God loves us in a way that rejoices in the truth. And so sufficient is his love. So sufficient is God that he has taken the initiative to provide for us in Jesus what we cannot provide for ourselves. 